distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure to declare open the 27th session of the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, as COP27 opens in Egypt, we look at what to expect and put a special focus on the role of business in combating climate change. We need, of course, governments to lead in setting the policy frameworks, but we also don't have the time in terms of where we're at on climate change to wait for governments to lead. So what we're seeing is increasingly businesses stepping up. The head of climate action at the World Economic Forum tells us what to expect from Sharm el-Sheikh. The presidency is calling this the cop of implementation. How do you go from setting those targets to truly implementing those commitments? And it's not all about greenhouse gas emissions, as the world faces the fact we have to adapt to live with the inevitable changes of the climate. And also the global south is demanding that the developed world pays for damage already caused. Adaptation and the loss and damage are big issues that are addressed in Shamal Sheikh. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum. And with this look at the 27th Conference of the Parties to the Climate Change Convention. It's now the 27th COP. Ideally, we would have resolved this issue many COPs before. This is Radio Davos. So the latest COP has begun. Over the next two weeks, governments will be trying to inch the world closer to dealing with climate change in the knowledge that we're way behind in what we need to do. So what can we expect from Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt? What do people want from this COP? Let me read from an open letter published just before it started. Emissions under current policies are projected to be still 25 gigatons of CO2 equivalent higher than what is essential to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This gap is equivalent to the annual emissions of 5.4 billion cars. Governments must raise their ambition and enact policy changes to close this gap. Otherwise, we face a significant threat to the existence of human life and nature. The letter calls on business and governments to act, to scrap subsidies for fossil fuels and to incentivise low carbon technologies and put a price on the emission of carbon. Who was the letter from? Not a green group, but business itself. More than 100 chief executives of some of the world's most important companies grouped together in a thing called the Alliance of CEO Climate Leaders. In this episode of Radio Davos, we look at the role of the private sector in pushing through big changes this decade. To do that, I talk to Antonia Gavel, who, as head of climate action at the World Economic Forum, plays a key role in bringing companies and governments and civil society groups together to find solutions to this immense problem. Before we hear from Antonio, though, let's listen to the opening session at Sharm el-Sheikh. This is Alok Sharma, president of the last COP, COP26 in Glasgow, speaking before handing over to his Egyptian counterpart. Alok Sharma urges governments not to allow the war in Ukraine and global economic turmoil to divert them from the path of climate action. We have been buffeted by global headwinds that have tested our ability to make progress. Putin's brutal and illegal war in Ukraine has precipitated multiple global crises, energy and food insecurity, inflationary pressures and spiraling debt. And these crises have compounded existing climate vulnerabilities and the scarring effects of the pandemic. And yet, despite this context, there has been some progress in implementing the commitments that we delivered in Glasgow. Over 90% of the global economy is now covered by a net zero target 
up from less than 30% when the UK took on the COP26 role. Friends, we are not currently on a pathway that keeps 1.5 in reach. And whilst I do understand that leaders around the world have faced competing priorities this year, we must be clear, as challenging as our current moment is, inaction is myopic and can only defer climate catastrophe. Alok Sharma, who handed over the presidency of the COP to Egypt's foreign minister, Sameh Shukri, who had this to say about the issue of richer countries paying poorer ones to cope with climate change. I particularly welcome the agreement of the parties to include a new agenda item on funding arrangements to respond to loss and damage. This creates, for the first time, an institutionally stable space on the formal agenda of the COP and the Paris Agreement to discuss the pressing issue of funding arrangements needed to deal with existing gaps in responding to loss and damage. Sami Shukri, president of COP27, now underway in Egypt. To discuss what to expect from that conference, COP27, and to look at the role of business, I'm joined now by Antonia Gavel, head of climate action at the World Economic Forum. Hi, Antonia, how are you? I'm great, thanks, Robin. What is a COP, a conference of the parties? You know, what's the significance of this huge annual event? Conference of the parties, it's the members of the climate treaty coming together annually to really negotiate progress towards where we need to be in terms of tackling climate change. Uh, So it's now the 27th COP. Ideally, we would have resolved this issue many COPs before, but here we are in this in this conversation and and we expect this cop to be slightly different than what we saw last year in in Glasgow whereby there there was a big push for increase in uh, country targets this one is very much about moving towards implementation of those targets uh, as well of course as closing that gap that we see uh, in in emissions so moving from talk to action in a way moving from targets to actual what how those targets will be achieved yes exactly so the World Economic Forum, for which we both work, um, has a particular role in this because the forum is the place for public-private cooperation, collaboration. And so you've worked closely with the private sector and with the public sector. And as I read out at the start of this episode, many companies, over 100 companies, have signed this letter calling for action from themselves and from their peers, but also from governments. Can you just give us some background on what that letter is who were those chief executives and why they why they wrote that letter yeah sure i mean maybe maybe i can start with why why this type of partnership and collaboration is important right so the cop and the conference of the parties and and the, the un climate accord is very much a governmental negotiation process but what we know and what we see is that actually to implement the solutions to climate change you really need all of society. You need businesses, of course, but you also need uh, citizens and and all actors to play a role. Uh, And in particular, when it comes to technology innovation, to financial flows, the expectation indeed is that this will uh, ultimately come very much from the private sector. So on one hand, we need, of course, governments to lead in setting the policy frameworks, but we also don't have the time really at this point in terms of where we're at on climate change to wait for governments to lead. So what we're seeing is increasingly businesses stepping up above and and in many cases ahead of government policy leadership 
uh, to set a precedent for for that action. Uh, and that's really what we're seeing with this group of CO climate leaders. These are companies who have set science-based targets. Um, they have clear decarbonization plans in place. And really what they're saying is, look, we're ready to play our part. We are, and we're demonstrating how we are. But in order for us to tackle this challenge as quickly as we need to see it tackled, we do really need governments to, to increasingly uh, step up when it comes to policy and and frameworks to to accelerate things. Let's just have a quick look at this open letter. So it's from the um, Alliance of CEO Climate Leaders, and these are it's over a hundred chief executives of pretty big companies now, and they they're calling on companies themselves and others to set science based targets which would be in line with the Paris Agreement, which means effectively net zero emissions. They're calling on governments and for regulatory institutions, such as organisations that regulate stock markets and financial markets to set standards, to be able to measure companies' progress on climate action so that companies aren't just saying they're doing stuff, they're actually proving they're doing stuff. And they're also asking for phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies and putting a price on carbon. I mean, it's remarkable. If if anyone's not been paying attention to the private sector on this for the last few years, it, it sounds a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas, doesn't it? They're basically saying, we produce carbon emissions we should be paying for that. That's at least what these 100 CEOs are saying. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, if if you look at the CEO climate leaders as a group, um, so so this is a group who actually was established around uh, the time of the Paris Accord, right? So then that was uh, really a time when the business and private sector was, let's say, less closely engaged and active in in really driving for change uh, when it comes to policy action. And you know, we saw a landmark shift in in the climate negotiations in Paris, and this group continues has continued since then to drive that message, but also expand and grow the coalition. So it's now over 120 global companies uh, coming from 26 countries, 12 industries, and they represent almost nine million employees. So these are sizable economic players, and you know, this type of signal to governments is intended again, really, just to make that case that um, you know they are they are acting they're demonstrating and, and we are careful about tracking this that they are implementing plans that are consistent with their targets um, but equally as is noted in the letter and as you summarized there are many systemic issues that need to be cha- uh, tackled in order to really uh, address climate change as you mentioned things like fossil fuel subsidies um, you know a golden ticket would be getting a price on carbon that is politically challenging but there are ways of putting implicit prices on carbon through different types of policy mechanisms um, you know even the uh, the IRA that's come out in the US the recent policy um, will go a long way actually to putting incredible incentives on uh, technologies that will support climate change progress. So indeed, it is it is this, uh, let's say, partnership effort where, yes, these businesses are, are acting, but they can only go so far on their own. And so that's where the partnership and the collaboration is so critical uh, in order for us to speed up this action. The IRA is the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the, the big climate change legislation recently passed in the United States. Okay, so that's the letter. People can read that on our website and probably many other places. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this show and the blog that accompanies it. Let's look at COP27 then. It's in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Can you give us an outline of 
what will be the main topics of discussion? Certainly. So if we look to Glasgow and and COP26, you know, this was seen very much, I think, as a landmark COP when it came to one, um, really a moment to try to close the emission gap uh, from the different economies. We didn't quite get there. Of course, the goal is to try to keep the world on path to 1.5. Estimates suggest that coming out of that COP, we're anywhere from 2.4 to 2.6 degrees of warming right now in terms of where the national commitments landed. Um, At the same time, there was probably greater momentum than ever seen before when it came to major public-private partnerships that had very clear impact objectives launched in Glasgow. So a lot of commitment, a lot of announcement, not quite enough progress when it came to emission reduction commitments from countries. So fast forward to Egypt, um, really the presidency is, is calling this the COP of implementation, right? So how do you go from on one hand, yes, setting those targets, closing that emission gap, um, obviously with still more work to do there and launching these commitments to truly implementing those commitments, right? So one focus, of course, will be on finance, right? So we are still pushing and there is still a push that in particular, the developed economies deliver on uh, the financing that has been committed to developing economies in order for them to help uh, tackle climate change and also adapt to climate change. Um, so that will be a continued call that we expect to see at this uh, at this COP. And so on that, in Glasgow, it was agreed that there would be $100 billion a year to assist developing countries. So that was a target set. But again, implementation, it hasn't actually happened yet, right? So that target had been set before Glasgow. It has been kind of on the table for a number of years. And the challenge is actually delivering on that commitment. So I think there is a continued expectation for that to be seen through. And equally, the private sector made quite a bold commitment when it came to private sector financial deployment. So you saw major banks and financial institutions pledging to deploy a huge amount of capital in the trillions of dollars to support climate. And again, the challenge here now is to say, okay, let's actually not only see money committed, but actually see money invested on the ground in the markets that need it most. And this is very much one of the the focuses that the Egyptian presidency is driving. So looking really at projects, looking at financial models, and really looking to the private sector and the financial sector to not only commit, but actually deploy capital. So that will be a significant focus that we expect to see. So finance will be a big issue. And also, it's a buzzword that we're hearing a lot about at the moment is adaptation. There was a thing called mitigation, which is reducing the greenhouse gases you're putting out. And then adaptation, adapting our ways of life, our cities, uh, our coastlines, the, the ways of doing things to climate change, which is already underway. Why is adaptation such a big deal in Sharm el-Sheikh? Adaptation and and then I'll put another kind of word on the table, loss and damage are also going to be big issues that are addressed in, in Sharm el-Sheikh. Adaptation essentially is the reality that we are seeing incredible climate impacts happening already today. Just over 3 billion people live in highly vulnerable situations when it comes to potential climate impacts. And there are already millions of people that are being displaced from everything from floods to droughts to extreme weather events. And so, you know, I think we've seen this ourselves in in Europe, China, 
in Pakistan. There's a long list, unfortunately, of events that we've really seen even over the past few months. So the question really is, how are we going to adapt to the current realities of climate change and who is going to pay for that? And that is really the question that continues to really be challenging in the context of the negotiations. And that, of course, the expectation is that the rich world will support and finance the the developing world in paying for adaptation given the historical responsibility for the emissions um, that were created. So adaptation will certainly be key. I think an issue in an, an area that we will be putting on the table is actually the role that business has to play in adaptation. And, and really that comes at three levels. So first, it's building a recognition and understanding that businesses' own operations will be impacted by climate change and that companies will will and need to really pay attention to where that might be the case and understand their, their risk portfolio. At the same time, businesses also have a positive potential to actually provide solutions uh, to support adaptation as well, right? So if you look at things like early warning system, different technological innovations, there are, are solutions that can really be put to work to to help here. Now, the third area um, when it comes to tackling and managing adaptation is is very much actually about partnership and collaboration, right? So if you're a company, for example, who has an operation in a climate vulnerable area and you understandably do work to protect your assets, if you don't think about and work in collaboration with the communities around you, you are not going to actually have a successful outcome when it comes to, on one hand, yes, sure, protecting your assets, but actually building resilience within the ecosystem within which you operate, which includes, of course, your employees um, and many of the the systems on which you rely. And so the part, the point that we're making here is that you cannot adapt in isolation. You need to adapt in partnership and in collaboration and work with government, work with city officials, work with communities, um, so that you can really build a resilient ecosystem in in partnership and really draw in the intelligence and knowledge that can be built together um, in adapting to climate change. So that is certainly an area that we are seeking to raise further understanding and, and awareness about because I think it is safe to say that adaptation hasn't really been at the forefront of the private sector's mind in this way. Let's look at some of the public-private partnerships that you're involved with, that the World Economic Forum is involved with. I remember in Glasgow at COP26, I think that was the launch of the First Movers Coalition there. Could you remind us what that is, where we're at now with it, and what we might see at COP27? Yeah, absolutely. So the First Movers Coalition, as you said, was a partnership that we launched in collaboration uh, with the the State Department, U.S. Secretary Kerry's team uh, in in the U.S. And really what this seeks to tackle is industrial emissions. So industry is responsible for about 30% of global CO2 emissions. And it faces a little bit of what I call a chicken and egg problem, right? There's large scale 
currently costly solutions that are necessary to decarbonize many of the industrial sectors. So things like green steel, which relies on uh, hydrogen uh, from green sources to very advanced sustainable aviation fuels, which are currently only in a pilot stage. These are very costly solutions. And unless you have um, immediate, let's say, policy responses to bring down those costs, they are essentially remaining where they are. And so the First Movers Coalition is really about tackling that chicken and egg problem. And it's creating a major demand signal for those solutions by designing purchasing commitments for these zero emission technologies and services by 2030. So we've taken seven sectors. So it's aluminum, aviation, cement and concrete, chemicals, shipping, steel, and trucking, and also carbon removals designed specific demand commitments for solutions by 2030. And we've asked companies to make those commitments to purchase, for example, a certain percentage of green steel as part of their manufacturing process to really, again, try to unlock the stalemate, let's say, that we see in these types of solutions. And a year on from the launch then, are you seeing progress there? Are things moving forward? Indeed. So we now have 58 companies who have joined the FMC. And this is a pretty, let's say, significant group. Uh, so they now represent over eight and a half trillion in market capitalization. In Glasgow, we, we launched with 35 companies. So one of our goals has been to grow that demand signal, but grow it quite carefully, really focusing on those companies who really will have a sizable impact in terms of pulling those technologies forward. So that's the First Movers Coalition, the FMC. There's lots about that on our website. Now let's talk, Antonia, about how companies then are doing implementation. If this is the implementation COP, are you able to tell us anything about, you know, to people listening to this, how are big companies implementing the promises they've made to cut greenhouse gas emissions? There tends to be and there has been a big focus on companies setting science-based targets, right? This is this is a level of commitment that we ask our companies to make. They are focused on 2050. So one of the first things that we are driving the companies to do is to really set near-term commitments as well. So 2030 commitments, because really the action needs to start now. It can't be something that future CEOs will have to manage in, in a decade or so. Um, so a lot of the leading companies are very much focused on that 2030 objective, but then even nearer term, um, actually starting to put in place operational practices and business practices that are, are shifting the needle. Um, the other specific thing to note is a focus on supply chains. So for many companies, a major proportion of their emissions actually don't sit in their what we call scope one and scope two emissions. So the things that sit within their own operational control um, or kind of managing their electricity consumption, it sits within their supply chains up to 90% in a number of cases. So this is stuff they're, they're, they're buying and this, this is stuff they're selling and then the impact, the products they have sold when they're being used by someone else, they're still, they're still having an impact on, on emissions. That's scope three. You can think of scope three exactly in two ways. So either upstream, you know, so the things that you're putting into your product, so everything that comes ahead of your product and and then everything that comes after you sell your product. So as you say, the way that consumers use that product or the way that it gets managed through its life cycle are part of those scope three emissions. So, so this is obviously a challenging area for companies to address. But again, those who are really leading this agenda are committed and setting targets really to tackle those scope three emissions. And again, not by 2050, but really in the near term. Um, so maybe just a few examples of that, right? So 
the circular economy, right? So the circular economy is is very much a way of saying that companies are changing business models and practices to address waste in the system, right? So they're trying to address waste uh, upstream and they're trying to address address waste downstream. And Philips, for example, has been a real leader in this agenda, as well as IKEA, driving a shift to uh, service-based business models, but also really setting targets to minimize the material impact through their value chains. I think it's important to note that materials represent a huge proportion of CO2 emissions through through the way that companies kind of consume and use those. IKEA, you know, has a famous, <laughs> pretty famous example now, or at least I've heard it a number of times, focusing on mattresses, right? So mattresses are a kind of you know, really challenging product, let's say, to to deal with when it comes to to waste. And so IKEA has kind of created a whole new business line in order to deal with this and and bring mattresses back into circulation. And at first they perceived this to be something they were doing because it was the right thing to do, but actually they found that it is actually quite a profitable business model. So there's this this shift in terms of on one hand um, tackling the problem, but also a recognition that actually this is offering new and interesting business lines as well. Let's talk about nature-based solutions, Antonia. I know that's an important thing when it comes to tackling climate change. What is the World Economic Forum involved in on that? Last year in Glasgow, I would say we really saw a turning point when it came to a focus on nature. Many called it the nature COP. And I think the expectation and really the need is is for that to continue as we move into the COP this year. So last year, um, our Tropical Forest Alliance launched uh, an incredibly important challenge. So really challenging some of the largest agri companies to commit to roadmaps to halt deforestation within their value chains. And the expectation at this COP is that they will really present the roadmap that explains how they plan to progress that forward. The other related piece here, of course, is food, land use, and ocean systems as well. So we are in a situation, of course, now where uh, we're on the brink of, of of a food crisis. And what we will see, I think, and Egypt has very much put it on the agenda, a focus on food, the role of food and land use transformation in, on one hand, uh, contributing to climate change, but also potentially offering solutions to tackle climate change as well, but also the requirement that we do this in a way that uh, really manages the impacts on individuals, right? So when we are faced with this crisis situation that we're in, we need to think carefully about the way that these solutions are deployed so that there is very much a positive um, win-win as well. So I think just point being that nature, food, land use, ocean systems on one hand are an incredible solution to tackling climate change, um, but we equally need to ensure that we don't exacerbate the challenges that these systems currently face um, through uh, continuous destruction of those ecosystems as well. Is it possible to say in advance of COP how you would judge whether it was a success or a failure? I got the impression after COP26 that it was a glass half full type situation. Even the you know the chairman of the COP seemed to be putting it a bit like that. Are, are there kind of benchmarks we'll be using or is it just a bit too complex and there's too many things for us to say glibly, oh, that went well, that was a success or it didn't? The expectation for this COP is really one where it maintains momentum more than 
being one where we see a new breakthrough landmark deal necessarily, right? So the cops go in in somewhat of cycles in that way. So there was a big expectation around Paris. There was quite a large expectation around Glasgow. Um, this is a COP where it is really about continuing momentum, continuing to drive progress on some of the important issues, and again, tabling issues that perhaps were less prominent at the previous COP, like, as I said, adaptation um, issues like loss and damage, financing, uh, which are very much at the heart of uh, of the focus for Egypt and Africa in general. So I would say it's, it's less one where it's easy to say whether it's a success or a failure. I think a failure would be enhanced divides that are created through the dialogues rather than continued momentum and, and positive progress. Antonia Gavel is Head of Climate Action at the World Economic Forum. There's lots more about COP27 and about climate change on our website, weforum.org, and several podcast episodes on the subject on Radio Davos and on our sister podcast, Meet the Leader. Please subscribe to both of those wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a rating and a review. And join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. That's on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye. Bye.